We know that racism, based on accent alone, is extremely common, but it's not something that's often recognized as racial discrimination. Welcome listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. This podcast emerges out of Race Ed, a cross-university network concerned with race, racialization, and decolonial studies from a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary perspective. Undersong, the Race Ed podcast, is alternatively hosted by Katusha Bento, Nasser Mir, and myself, Shira Vadisaria. It receives curational and technical support by Sophia Huffinger and the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. So welcome, listeners. We have the special honor today to be in conversation with our own colleague here at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Lauren Hall Lu. Lauren Hall Lu is a reader in linguistics and English language at the School of Philosophy, Psychology and Language Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. In her work as a sociophonetician, she studies the social aspects of phonetic variation and the differences in speech amongst speakers of different social backgrounds. Lauren Hall-Lu received a MA and a PhD from Stanford University and was a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford before joining the University of Edinburgh as a lecturer. She's been recognized for her outstanding teaching and contribution to the student experience through various nominations and awards across the university. Most recently, Lauren has co-initiated the Lothian Lockdown Project, which investigates questions of public health, media, and communication among residents of Edinburgh and the Lothians in relation to COVID-19. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Shira. So part of the idea of the Race Ed podcast um, series is for us to get to know one another a little bit more and the kind of work that we do. And I think um, viewers, listeners of the of this episode might might yeah want to start by thinking about how you come to the work that you that you do and and what brought you what what brought you to this field. It is a very long, strange journey. <laughs> so the I think the main thing to keep in mind is what linguistics is really um, because I think that's why the journey looks the way that it does. The thing that I love about linguistics and that a lot of my fellow linguists like is that it's a very nice point of intersection between the sciences and the humanities. So usually people drawn to linguistics um, have a very analytic perspective on the world, but also a very creative and um, humanist side. And a lot of us were the kinds of kids who couldn't decide between literature and science when we were in school. Um, a lot of us also happen to be musicians. As a side note, I think music also brings together the analytic and the humanist side. Um, so when I was in high school, I was a musician and I was really interested in the brain. Um, my father gave me a book by Oliver Sacks that got me really interested in neuropsychology. And for some reason, um, I got it in my head that I wanted to pursue medicine and to pursue neurology. And so I went to the University of Arizona, majored in microbiology with a minor in psychology, with that being a goal. 
Um, I signed up for this program that I um, have to give a shout out to because it is the reason that I'm a linguist now called UBERP, <laughs> the Undergraduate Biology Research Program at the University of Arizona. Um, to this day, I'm a strong, strong proponent for undergraduate research opportunities, which are fewer in the UK than in the US. Um, but because without that, I don't know where I'd be right now. But I entered that program that was mostly for biology majors to pair undergraduate students with professional academic uh, researchers, mostly in biology. And so I spent the summer after my first year of university dissecting the brains of moth pupa to try to study olfaction um, at a neuronal level in moths. And I was really bad at it. <laughs> I could never get my neurons to grow. Uh, so I learned all these techniques in the lab. And I think I just must have wasted so much of their money because I couldn't get my neurons to grow. Um, and so at the end of that, um, I was also facing a year of organic chemistry and some more intimidating classes. And I thought, you know, I don't think this is for me. Oh, I also shadowed a couple doctors who were miserable. So I said, okay, <laughs> I'm not gonna go into medicine, um, but I'm really still interested in the brain and in cognition and in the more creative side of things. And so I, um, I don't really know exactly how, but I stumbled upon linguistics as possibly something that would satisfy those interests. And I went back to the UBERP program and they happened to have a couple linguists who were funded by the National Science Foundation. And so even though they weren't biologists, they were able to hire me um, as a research assistant. And I didn't have to grow anything in a petri dish and I didn't have to dissect anything. I could just sit and listen. Um, and the project that I joined was Dr. Malka Yeager-Dror's study of um, variation in negation and prosody. So she was doing a study looking at when we say it isn't versus it is not. And also the intonation with that. So it isn't versus it isn't. Um, and so I learned how to distinguish all those variants and code them in existing speech corpora. So we were looking at conversations in telephone um, chats between friends and family, between strangers. Um, my main job was to code the uh, presidential debates between uh, Bush and Clinton and code them for variation in both how they pronounce the or not and the the um the intonation can i just yeah. ask a follow-up though what yeah. would the intonation reveal right okay yeah i should back up okay so um so malka yeager jor was asking the question of uh if the variation in the way we pronounce isn't or isn't if that was predicted by cognitive factors mm -hmm. so how important that um word was to the conversation, if it was uh, a new um, crucial distinguishing form that would disambiguate between it is and it isn't, or social factors. So um, if it was an argumentative stance that someone was taking or a supportive stance that someone was taking, um, because there's this general uh, approach to studying that kind of variation um, in experimental pragmatics, for example, that says that um, if you mention something first, it's more likely to be made prominent. So it is not what I meant to say. Whereas if you mention it subsequent times, it's less likely to be prominent. So that isn't what I said. 
So saying it, you have to, you can reduce it because people know what you're trying to say. And that is definitely a factor. It's very, very robust. But often people who do that research don't look at the social side of things. And Malka Yegerjor is a sociolinguist. So she's interested in identity and social interaction and um, all the reasons that that people might vary the way they speak based on who they are and who they're talking to um, and the social effects of what they might be doing. And so what we found was that even if um, there's reason to reduce the form, you'd expect um, someone to say, I didn't say that. If they're in a debate, a presidential debate, for example, it's very uh, important for them to be aggressive. And so they might say, it isn't what I said. It is not what I said, even if they've already said that 10 times. <laughs> yeah. And so in, in, in analyzing the kind of intonations and the uh, inflections in the presidential debates of that time, what, um, I mean, what was, what, was, what was the idea in that? What, what could be discovered? So Malka Yeager-Drawer's study was looking broadly at a wide range of different kinds of interactions. Um, like I said, the conversation, she even looked at radio control tower speech, whatever was available um, in the, the late 90s in terms of recorded speech corpora. And so the presidential debates were interesting because they are a speech event that is framed around intentional antagonism. And so it sets up this comparison between that and other kinds of interactions, which might be antagonistic, like a telephone call between family members, but which are framed in a completely different way um, as intentionally supportive or by default supportive. And so this is a place that you have by default some antagonism. And so the prediction would be that that would be a site where you would see the social frame trumping, as it were, uh, the cognitive expectations. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. So Lauren, I think what our race ed listeners might be really curious about um, is how you treat the category of race and ethnicity in the work and how the field kind of engages with race and ethnicity as a social factor, um, more, you know, kind of more broadly defined. And I was um, interested in, in how you took it up in, in one of your articles, Coding for demographic categories in the in the creation of legacy Gora Asian American ethnic identities and there in there you talk a little bit also about how these categories come to be coded and recognized can you talk us through that a little bit yeah definitely um so socio linguistics and sociophonetics in particular the study of speech sounds it's pretty young relative to other fields uh, in the social sciences um, we trace the modern iteration back to william lebov's work in the 1960s in new york city and in that work uh, he was looking at social class mainly um, but it was very clear that uh, while he could look at um, people of Jewish or Italian descent, on the one hand, um, that the Black population, he put aside to a completely different 
book. So from the very, very beginning, the study of African-American English or uh, Black English or non-standard Negro English has been called so many different things. That's been at the heart and the center of the study of sociolinguistics and, and variationist sociolinguistics, we call it. Um, but for a very long time, it was sort of stuck at these macro social levels, um, so much so that there wasn't really any study on internal variation within Black English or now African-American language is what it's called and what I'll call it. That didn't really come about until the early 2000s. Um, it was a lot of focus on trying to show how legitimate African-American language is, how much of a fully formed complex linguistic system it is relative to uh, so-called standard or mainstream American English. So there was this kind of 1960s American political struggle that um, actively downplayed variation within a racial group. Um, and that just started to get picked apart uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, there also wasn't that much work on any other ethnic group. So the, there was tons of work on the African-American language, um, but not a lot of work on variation within it and not a lot of work on groups that were not white outside of it. There were, I could name the studies, but the fact that I can name them is uh, indicative. Um, so around the late 90s, early 2000s is when work really started to take off in Latinx communities um, and some on Asian American communities or um, in Asian Canadian communities, although those have been, um, it's, it's only really within recent years that that's taken off. So this question of how to operationalize race or ethnicity for our social research um, it's an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was trying to do in that particular paper was uh, just focus on the issues at play in thinking about Asian America. And it's nothing I don't think that is particularly revolutionary if you work on Asian Americans or um, Asian North Americans in the social sciences. Um, there's nothing particularly linguistic about it. And so I was really focusing on the issues that we all know to be at play, um, but for a linguistic audience. So the work that had been done thus at, at that point um, mostly looked at East Asian Americans um, or maybe would focus on uh, um, one particular group. So there would be a paper here and there on um, Japanese Americans in California. Um, and my PhD work was on Chinese Americans. Um, and I was really motivated to work on the paper because what struck me in doing my ethnographic research was the ways in which Asian Americans identified in my community of study as Asian more than they identified as Chinese. So based on what I just told you about African-Americans and uh, black studies in sociolinguistics, there was this push against the homogeneity imposed by a label that covers um, all sorts of different people and calls them one thing, like black or African-American. Right. I was finding in my community that the Asian-Americans were adopting that for very intentional or purposeful or useful or agentive reasons. Right, that's, that's fascinating. What are some of the ways that, um, I mean, what are some of the kind of tension points that you, you encounter um, in the ways that you treat the category of race or ethnicity? Because I'm thinking about 
um, I'm thinking about the challenges in using the category of race or ethnicity as a social variable in a study. Um, I mean, part of the risk is that it, it assumes that race is real, right? It assumes that race is a thing. And we know that, um, you know, we know that there's debates within the field of race studies that tries to tackle how we should talk about race, how we understand race as something that is both a social construct with real lived um, consequences. And so I, I guess what I'm asking is, um, how, how does one kind of quantitatively and qualitatively engage with the study of race as a social variable without reproducing essentialized um, and fixed ideas about who people are? Yeah, so I have to say, I think I have an advantage as a linguist because for me, it's quite easy. It's all about trying to understand what are the social factors that best predict language variation. Coming at it from that perspective, I can take the stance of being absolutely neutral to all of those things in terms of my methodology. So um, one thing that I found to be interesting, like I said, is that uh, at one level, it was possible to distinguish the Asian speakers in my sample from the non-Asian speakers uh, who were mostly white um, and find robust patterns of linguistic variation. And then at another level, I could break it down and compare Chinese to non-Chinese. Um, and that was a robust level of predicting linguistic variation. And at another level, I could break it down to people who were Southern Chinese descendant and Northern Chinese descendant and find a suggestive, although at that point, not entirely uh, statistically supported because I was running out of people, um, but a, a suggestive difference, a, quali a strong qualitative difference in patterns of speech. So it's not, for me, actually the case that you have to choose one or the other. It's the case that all of these levels potentially matter. And the answer just comes from what are the social practices and the ideologies of the community. Okay. And so then what, what do the indicators become the indicators of variation? Like what kind of things would you, would you look out for? So the main thing that I'm interested in is what's hegemonic and what's not. So what's marked, what's um, ideologically given as neutral and what is or as, as not neutral rather. So what's unmarked, what's neutral, what's expected, what's quote unquote common sense, where does hegemonic power lie? And, um, and that's usually going to carve up the social space in a pretty neat way where you can, you can begin. So, in the Sunset District of San Francisco, where my mother was raised, which is 50% Chinese American, roughly, that's where I did my PhD research. There, um, when I did my work in the 2000s, um, it was a default uh, that Chinese social practice was the community norm. So this is a very unusual situation um, in the world, <laughs> um, and especially outside of Chinatown. So I was looking at this phenomenon of new Chinatowns. And um, so it's the kind of thing where, you know, um, using chopsticks is just the norm. Everyone knows how to use chopsticks. Um, knowing certain words in Chinese is the norm. Um, having soy sauce in your kitchen is the norm, regardless of your ethnicity. And so okay. those are the kind of social practices 
that I'm, I'm looking at to understand um, how that norm comes about. The other thing I look at is change in variations. I'm looking at changes in the way people pronounce their vowels and consonants and, you know, how we got to be here instead of talking like Shakespeare. So um, <laughs> there's a social practice side to that. And okay. so I try to look for the correlates of those changes. Okay. So what is the difference between the social social factors and cultural factors? Because I'm I'm hearing these examples as um, as kind of uh, yeah these th these are examples that might be easily categorized as cultural practices. Yeah, absolutely. And I would call myself a sociocultural sociolinguist. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so just kind of in the way that I'm not too bothered about a priori defining race or ethnicity. I'm right. also not too bothered about a priori defining my practices that I'm investigating, whether they be so social or cultural, because in the end, to me, they kind of meld together in ways that are, um, you know, that's just how people are. I, when we live in the world, we don't distinguish between our social and our cultural practices. To us, mm -hmm. they are part of the same thing. And language is essentially that as well. Language is always both so social and cultural. And so it doesn't make, um, it's not as useful for me to make that distinction. Right. That make that makes a lot of sense. Do you do you get do you do you get in trouble with um, um, with other scholars in your field that like to draw hard line distinctions between the two? No, because what's funny is either people um, kind of sit where I sit, or they're not too bothered for the other on the other end of things um, because they're not um, cultural theorists. <laughs> Um, they're more like structural linguists. So um, within the field, there's nobody, um, nobody who's really uh, too upset about it. <laughs> I think I want to stay on this theme a little bit, though, about the social and the cultural. Like in this example of um, kind of social practices in uh, in San Francisco that adopt Chinese cultural norms, um, how then would you be able to distinguish in the I guess in the in the linguistics themselves between someone who identified as Chinese and someone who didn't, if they're adopting the same kind of cultural practice like how I guess I'm asking more yeah. about your methodology and how we understand race or ethnicity as a as a social or cultural um, formation sure yeah at a very practical level yeah. if you look at my spreadsheet of data I've yeah. got a column that codes people in a macro social category of Asian a racial category I've got a column that codes them according to a, a macro social ethnic category of Chinese or Japanese or whatever. I have a column coding them the way that they identify as explicitly stated in the interview. And I have a column that represents ethnographic insight in terms of their sociocultural practices. And those often don't align. And so okay. part of what I do is exploratory research, looking at what correlates with what. Part of it is that people dynamically move between these identities. Right. right. Um, so if you take someone, especially who's a northern Chinese descendant, second generation American in San Francisco, mm -hmm. they're someone who's part of a newer wave of migration, but they're also part of the majority Chinese population and the majority Asian population in this neighborhood. And so as they move through their spaces, 
in real time, they will shift orientation to these different identities. So I'm not so concerned about how to identify any one person. It's more to do with which cultural practices or social practices they're orienting to in any given moment, and also how they are perceived um, by outsiders, right? So I can interview someone who's mixed race and strongly identifies as mixed race or strongly identifies as a quarter Korean, as I have in my sample, but who is read by an outsider as white. And so with that experience, the way they move through different kinds of ethnically marked or racially marked spaces is probably going to influence the way that they're using language in that particular time. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know there's debates, you know, there's different kinds of debates within um, different traditions of, of, of race theory that ask the question, what is it that we, we want to do with this category of race? Is the goal a post-racial society? You know, and I think I think critical scholars of race would um, suggest that that post-racial society is a difficult kind of utopian um, aspiration, and that also it might not be politically productive to assume that um, that we can just dismiss the category of race, right? That it can that you know we pretend that um, it doesn't exist. Um, and so, I guess my my kind of last question for you is. How might we think about um, the emancipatory aims of this kind of research that you do that very much takes into consideration racial and ethnic factors? Um, what, what might be the anti-racist aspirations of this kind of scholarship? Does it help us think about a world less defined by um, essentialized categories or does it actually move our are thinking to think in more complex ways about the ways we inhabit um, um, this phenomena called race. So I'd like to point listeners to work on racio-linguistics, which I don't consider myself really active in uh, anymore, but uh, Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa uh, are leaders in this area. And there's a bunch of um, books and articles that are really fantastic that people can, can look at. There is a lot of other research in sociophonetics that is explicitly anti-racist. So we know that racism based on accent alone is extremely common, but it's not something that's often recognized as racial discrimination, legally or otherwise. Sociophonetic research in the United States in particular has shown that Americans can identify the race of a speaker based on as little as just one word or one syllable. So sociolinguists, therefore, have documented accent discrimination in all areas of American life, employment, housing, education, the courts. Um, so for example, Rickford and King's recent research has shown how the jury on the Trayvon Martin case entirely dismissed the testimony of the main witness, Rachel Gentall, based entirely on her way of speaking. So part of my work and the work of a lot of us in sociophonetics is to look at the relationship between racialized ways of speaking and evaluations of credibility, intelligence, and other markers of value. think that if we think about race and ethnicity in terms of social action and social practice and active construction and 
fluid um, negotiation, if we look at the dynamic side of things, that gets us closer to the empirical truth. And as long as we're talking about people as static identity categories, then that's not a useful uh, thing to do. Um, so in my research, one of the points that I was trying to make was that you can have non-white speakers be the representative speakers of regional dialectology. So this is a little bit um, uh, aside from what you're asking, but for a long time, people who work in English dialectology or European dialectology have only viewed white speakers as legitimate speakers of regional variation. Right. And part of the um, change that I talked about in the late um, 90s and early 2000s of looking at African-American language in a more nuanced way was to look just at regional variation in African-American English, which is almost laughable because there's so much of it. And it's really um, interesting politically that it hadn't been looked at before. But along with that, there were claims that happened in the early 2000s that non-white speakers didn't participate in regional sound change so that they were not the people leading the way that English pronunciation was changing over time, that you had to look at white communities. But all of those studies really um, were either comparing white to black um, where the level of disenfranchisement was so large that it was hard to um, really ask that question. Um, or they were looking at um, communities where non-white speakers were really the minority. And so by looking at a community where non-white speakers were the majority, I was arguing that it was that they were legitimate in terms of what makes uh, for a representative American English speaker. And the point is really that in the 1970s and 80s in San Francisco, and particularly in this neighborhood, there was a shift overall from white cultural practice to Asian cultural practice. And so by that point, if language is also cultural practice, which it is, right. then we have to take the Asian norm as the representative regional norm. So by showing a context in which Chinese Americans can represent the normal defaults, hegemonic even, ways of speaking, it flies in contrast to a number of interesting studies on linguistic discrimination and speech discrimination with respect to race and ethnicity. Um, so for example, there's a number of studies that show that if you show the average undergraduate class of American students a picture of a Chinese face, that they will actually understand and retain less of the content of speech than if right. they see a white face. Um, and another study showing that if they hear Chinese accented speech uh, with the Chinese face, that they will actually retain more of the information. So there's this still this um, forever foreigner concept that right. pervades studies on Asian Americans in general. We see that played out at a sociophonetic level. So by showing cases where Asians are representative speakers of American English is showing the empirical facts that uh, countervail that racist ideology. And is there a possibility for communities um, to, is there a possibility, is there even an aspiration, I guess, in the field to, to recognize um, the value of communities speaking in their own dialect? And for that, for that dialect to still be recognized as official language, I guess. Absolutely. Because yeah. 
Because I guess what I'm asking also is that is 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 um, the recognition only through um, ascendance to whiteness or ascendance to hegemonic, uh, well, hegemonic, what's accepted hegemonically, which, you know, we can talk about more broadly as whiteness. No, white, no, white. not right. Right. It's exactly as you say. So there's a kind of linguistic activism that is normal in sociolinguistics and sociophonetics that's about validating all different ways of speaking and trying to disrupt the prevailing notion of uh, the native speaker um, of standard English as a phenomenon. Um, lots of really interesting work from an educational point of view in terms of accent goals among uh, English learners. Um, also lots of work looking at the uh, perpetuation of standard language ideology at primary and secondary schools in diverse places that are not only about looking at um, supporting racialized ways of speaking, but also, you know, um, lower socioeconomic class uh, ways of speaking and all sorts of variation. Um, so variationists like myself are um, big proponents of trying to show the legitimacy, the vibrancy, the importance, linguistic equality. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful way to frame that. Thank you. I think we'll wrap up here. But again, Lauren, thank you so much for um, spending time with us this morning and uh, sharing more about your research with our colleagues here at the University of Edinburgh and abroad. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me, Sharon. Thank you all listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. You can find this and all our other episodes on the Race Ed website. That is www.race.ed.ac.uk and on the SoundCloud. You can subscribe to receive brand new podcast episodes and share Undersong with colleagues, students and friends. Mm-hmm.